Pastor Mike Favares with Focal Point Ministries. I trust that the following recorded sermon will be a benefit and a challenge to your Christian walk. For more information about Focal Point Ministries, log on to our website at focalpointministries.org, focalpointministries.org, or call us toll-free at 888-320-5885. Tonight, we're going to move into very simple, easy truths of predestination and election. We're going to be, probably be done in 30 minutes, so that's sarcasm. We're not. And if ever we need prayer, it's now. So let's pray. Let us pray. God, we are thankful to take time out of our week, open up our uh, Bibles and our minds to understand better your planning of our salvation. You think about soteriology, we have so many rich subjects within this section of theology that we can drink from and, and be enriched by, but this particular topic, as you know, is difficult for us, and we, uh, just in our humanity and in our short-sightedness, and even in our pride, we struggle so much uh, with this doctrine. So tonight we pray that it would become more comfortable for us as we think through it. We look at the biblical parameters and the assertions of the text, and let us come away tonight with a better understanding of your word, even if it means that we're uh, maybe just standing in awe of the mystery of salvation, perhaps on a more uh, informed level, on a higher level. We thank you for sending your son to deal with our sin problem. We just start this time of thinking through your truths by giving an opportunity to confess our sins in our own hearts to you. We know that you're faithful and righteous to forgive us, God, if we are willing to admit our sin. And as Christians, we know we need that relationship repaired and restored. We need the spirit not to be grieved. So we pray, God, for his enlightening work tonight in this study. And that may need to begin with just a time now of remembering our frailty and our weakness and our sin. So God, we thank you for the redemption that is available to us. Deny our transgression and we run from it. God, just how hard that is for you, I'm sure, relationally and emotionally. Think of Genesis 6, that idea of your pain when you see us uh, in sin. And God, also you're faithful as a father, Hebrews 12, to discipline us when we're uh, stubborn about our sin. And we're grateful, God, for that and act an expression of your love. And God, we know it's hard for us when we deny and run from our transgression, fail to confess our sin. So God, we want to start just by thinking about a day like this that can rack up so many things that stand between you and us, a holy God, an imperfect people. And God, as best I can, interceding for this crowd, even those online streaming and those that will listen later, God, I just intercede as best I can, asking for you to be gracious to all of us, be merciful to us for the sins we don't recognize, for the problems we don't see. God, I do ask for conviction, but I pray that you be kind beyond even our acknowledgement and understanding and perception of some of the areas that we just haven't even seen because we haven't perceived your holiness. So God, with that in mind, we celebrate your forgiveness. We're grateful for it. Thanks so much for grace that we're going to study in depth here in the next couple of months. If you think about your planning of salvation and how you in eternity past looked at all of this, we only have what you revealed to us to go on, but we pray it'd be enough for us to stand in awe of your greatness, your freedom, your power, your unmitigated ability to make unencumbered and unhindered choices. So God, let us uh, come away from tonight with a, a greater and deeper, more profound sense of worship and thanksgiving and awe and reverence for who you are. God, thanks for this time. Enrich our minds now, we pray, as we study your word in Jesus' name. Amen. All right. Well, whenever we deal with difficult topics in the scripture, I think it's very important for us to start with some preliminary considerations. This could be true of just about anything, whether we're talking about the Trinity or some difficult attribute of God, or in this case, election and predestination. We need to go back to affirming afresh the authority 
of God's word. That is our base of information. That is the final arbiter for us in deciding what is right and what is wrong, what is true and what is not. We find, even as I prayed in our finite view, that there may be many things we uncover in the word, even rightly understood, that we just rebel against, we chafe against. We think this can't be the way it is. Uh, Well, if we conduct our theology that way, as I often say, if we feel our way through the Christian life, we're bound to run into all kinds of of theological error and problem and heresy and ultimately creating a God of our own making. So it's important for us to begin tonight just real quickly with a reminder and a re-emphasis of the authority of God's word. Don't forget the claim, number one, of scripture. The Bible is not just a primer to get us thinking about God and people there coaching us through the process of thinking about God. This isn't, as I often say, man's best thoughts about God. These are God's thoughts on paper. 2 Peter chapter 1, verse 20, knowing this, first of all, that no prophecy of Scripture, which is the totality of it in one sense or another, comes from someone's, someone's own and personal and unique and, and, and prejudiced interpretation. They're not musing about God and saying, well, I think God's like this. That's not the product of Scripture. No prophecy was ever produced by the will of man. It's not the decision of man. It's not the thought of man. It's not the creativity of man. But men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. We spent a whole semester on that concept. But the idea of God's breathed words recorded for us so that we can understand them, we can read them. That's the place for us to start. So whenever we look at any text of Scripture, and i got to warn you up front, lots of Scripture tonight. That's the only way to tackle these difficult concepts. Instead of spending lots of time thinking and debating and trying to reason our way through it, we need to look at Scripture and continue to have our thoughts channeled and even cornered into the right biblical thinking about election and predestination. So we start with that outlandish and crazy claim if it were not for the fact that it is authenticated. Consider the authentication. Get this all the time. Deal with it almost every single day in ministry. That someone is saying, why in the world do I trust that authority? Why is that authority the one that I have to bow to and submit my intellect to? Because God has continually punctuated throughout his written word proof that this is his written word and no one else could write it. This is not something that people can produce. How do we know they were carried along by the Spirit? Because God says through Isaiah chapter 44, verse 7, Who's like me, God says. Let him proclaim it. Let him declare it and set it before me. Since I appointed an ancient people, let them declare what is to come and what will happen. And all we'll get with people that line up to do that is a very shoddy and incomplete set of predictions about things. And they'll prove to be people thinking and creatively imagining what might happen, but not the kind of God who sees the end from the beginning. So fear not. If you're going to fall into the purview of God, you need to be not afraid. Have I not told you from old and declared it? Certainly the context here is the coming Babylonian captivity. So they're scared. They're afraid. You're my witnesses. Is there a God besides me? There is no rock. I know not any why, and I proved it to you because my information can be trusted because it is punctuated with predictive prophecy and not just indicative prophecy, but predictive prophecy that always comes true and God sets before us not just what happened when we weren't there to see it, but what is yet to come. And those things through 14, 1500 years of biblical history have proved that the book we're dealing with is unlike any other book on the shelf marked in the section religion. Number three, I dealt with this again this week, people debating me about, well, what we've got on paper isn't really what was written. You have to assert, which again could take us hours to adequately convince, and I think we could, any skeptic that what we have 
on our laps or on our tables tonight is an accurate depiction of the Word of God. And maybe this is a new angle for you to look at it this way. Matthew chapter 22, verse 29, one of many examples of Jesus who answers people's questions about what should be and what is and what's true and what's right by going to the scriptures. And he says to them, you're wrong because you know, you know neither the scriptures nor the power of God. That was a question Sadducees posed about the afterlife. And he's saying, you got the book. We see that all throughout the ministry of Christ. You have the book. And I just want you to think for a second. The things that Jesus quotes, like in Matthew 19, when he says, well, listen, let's figure out what marriage is all about and the permanence of it. And he quotes Genesis You understand when he quotes Genesis chapter 2, he's quoting a a text that was written 1,400 and and at that point, 70 years before Jesus is quoting it. 1,400 years. And, and, And the assumption is in Christ's words, who would prove that he knows what he's talking about by rising from the dead, is that what we have in the first century is what was written in the 14th century or 15th century before Christ. These have been accurately preserved. We see this throughout Christ's ministry, quoting his fact, and he proves that he knows what he's talking about by rising from the dead, that what he is reading and expecting everyone to follow is not just some ancient telephone game of some evolving scripture, but these are the words that God spoke through the prophets. He's quoting David. That's a thousand years before Christ. He's quoting Moses, 1,440 years before Christ. These are the words of God that have been preserved. And whenever we see God referring to his word going out, I think of this text, Isaiah 55, verse 11. And he says, it's going to go out and I'm going to speak through my prophets. They're going to write down these things. He says, it's not going to return to me empty. It's going to accomplish that which I purpose and it shall succeed in the thing for which I sent it. There's an underlying promise here. It's inferred. I understand that. But that God is going to get his word out. The word that is to be remain, that is to remain for the generations, he's going to make sure it accomplishes its purpose. It can't possibly do that if it evolves into something that it wasn't before. He preserves his word. And thankfully, and we spend a whole semester talking about the issues of revelation and inspiration and transmission of the text, we have great reminders throughout church history that every time we start to question whether or not the Bible is evolving and what we're reading really isn't what God wanted to say initially, God pops something out to our knowledge and to the publication to scholars and seminaries and Christians alike to say, listen, my word has not changed the Dead Sea Scrolls. I hope you recognize these pots from Qumran there, not far from the shores of the Dead Sea. Thankfully, jars like that preserved in arid parts of, of Judea that were preserved in caves like that that lasted, what, 1940 years from the time that they were buried in these mountains reminded us, especially in all of the liberal thinking that was going on in the 1940s and 50s, that the scripture has not evolved. There's not a telephone game. Isaiah was not written by a team of editors hundreds of years after it was supposedly written. The Dead Sea Scrolls. I love the fact that the very first scroll we pulled out and was photographed in in downtown Jerusalem was the great Isaiah scroll, all in one piece, perfectly preserved. A few exceptions on a few crinkled pages. A few deteriorated sections, very small. We have a preserved word from God. We have clear revelation. I know today Brian McLaren's and all the postmoderns of life would want to tell you we can't understand it, we can't know it, you can't possibly figure it out. It's too old, it's too complicated, it's too esoteric. The Bible's very clear. 
about the Bible, that the Bible is going to be the foundation of the judgment of men and women. And God is a fair God. He's not possibly going to give instructions, as I like to say, for the latchkey kid left on the kitchen table. There cannot be judgment for the person that ignores it if it's not a clear note, if it's not a clear communique from the Father. Jesus' ministry, New Testament, the focal point of faith is clarified now to Christ, the person of Christ. You're supposed to embrace Christ as the fulfillment of the Old Testament. He says, the one who rejects me and has not received my words has a judge. The word that I've spoken will judge him on the last day. I've not spoken on my own authority. I've spoken in the New Testament, in the Gospels, just like in the Old Testament, as the Father spoke. As the Father who sent me himself has given me a commandment, what to say and what to speak. I'm speaking eternal words, words that will judge you. Just like in that parable of the rich man and Lazarus, that when you come to a place of determining your eternal destiny, there is no excuse that God is going to say they have Moses and the prophets. Let them hear him. There's clarity. It is clear revelation. Number five, and of course, it's talking about things that I have to seemingly make excuses for on the weekend. We have all our visitors here, and I'm preaching about a passage of Scripture in Luke that brings up some unseen reality like the demonic, and I have to stop and remind them, listen, this isn't crazy talk. We can go into the Scripture, realize we have an authority from heaven. It is clear. It has been preserved. This isn't just myth. This is something that God has shown us. It makes logical sense the more we understand it. And we recognize that a lot of those unseen realities, though they're hard for us to daily keep in the forefront of our mind, it's important for us to see the Bible's going to tell us not only the things that we can see and perceive with our five senses, but things we need to understand that's going on behind the scene. It reveals unseen realities. Just one example. I just threw this one out. I could have picked a, a, a you know, thousand verses in the Bible. Here's two. Proverbs 21, 30 and 31. No wisdom, no understanding, no counsel can avail against the Lord. Who is the Lord? Can't see him, never met him, never seen him. Where is he? I can go through life as an atheist. He never seems to show up. You mean to tell me I can't? do something prevailing against him. I don't even know he had any wisdom or understanding. And I can deny all these unseen realities, but the Bible says they are realities. And that's what the Bible is all about, revealing God and who he is. Verse 31, not only that, he's actively involved in everyday stuff. The horse is made ready for the day of battle. Right, businessmen get their business plans together and figure out what they're going to do in their business. We've got architects drawing plans and, and we've got owners trying to build buildings and we've got new gadgets being built by engineers and development teams and all that. People are doing all these things, but the Bible says there's an unseen reality behind it all. Victory belongs to the Lord, whether it's a battle in Syria, a battle on the plains of, of Jericho, whether it's something going on in the business realm, God is working behind all of this. And the Bible's trying to show us those things. One more, we've got to accept it all. If the Bible speaks to the issue, no matter what it is, I have to embrace it. We talk about plenary inspiration, that all of Scripture is God-breathed. The classic text on that, which you may say, well, isn't he talking about the Old Testament? Well, sure he is. But once you jot down 2 Timothy chapter 3, verses 16 and 17, you might want to put down 2 Peter chapter 3, verse 16. And you could go back to John chapter 14 through chapter 16. Did you catch all those verses? I didn't think so. Someone said Phil spoke fast last week, so I thought you were ready for fast talking. Once you jot down 2 Timothy chapter 3, verses 16 and 17, you ought to jot down 2 Peter chapter 3, verse 16, which equates the scriptures to the writing of the Apostle Paul, who wrote a good chunk of the New Testament. And you ought to write down the upper room discourse when Jesus is promising the apostles that he's going to call to mind things that he'd done. And not only that, give them the spirit that's going to reveal truth they weren't ready for then. And they were going to be the emissaries of Christ. 
And so they were going to write scripture, just like the Old Testament prophets wrote scripture. You might want to throw down Ephesians chapter 2, verse 20, just like the prophets were the foundation. We also have the apostles becoming the foundation for the people of God, imbibing on the inspiration, or I should say the revelation from God, words that were God-breathed. And the Bible's clear, all of that. When God speaks through his prophets and apostles, it is breathed out by God, and it is profitable. How much of it is? Well, the first word in the verse there is everything, all of it. It's profitable to be taught, even if we don't like it. It's profitable for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness, so that we can be complete, equipped for every good work. I mean, our study tonight on election and predestination is a topic most people want to avoid. They don't care for it. And we need to recognize, as we build our doctrine of predestination and election, that we have to take all of Scripture and take it seriously because God has spoken. I suppose we could start any message with these six points. But they're important for us to catch whenever we deal with this difficult, naughty, if you will, in terms of of, of tangled doctrinal truth that we need to figure out. Because the problem for a lot of people is like this in Psalm 50, verse 16 and 17. Here are the people sacrificing. They would only know to sacrifice if they were willing to submit to some of the regulations of the Pentateuch, of what Moses had wrote. So we know they're adhering to some of the scriptures of the Old Testament. But in their hearts, in their lives, they're denying a lot of it. He says, you know, you guys talk about my my statutes, and you're doing a lot of them. You're coming to worship. You're bringing the calves, and you're bringing the lamb. But he says, you know what? You have no right to recite my statutes or take my covenant on your lips. Why? Because you hate discipline. When I correct you, when you do the wrong thing, you hate it. You're not corrected and reproved by it. And you cast my words behind you. Not all of them, of course, because they're heading to church with their lambs. So they're taking some of it, and they're rejecting the rest of it. And what's what follows? Slander, adultery, lying. All those things are in the next verses that talk about, I'm not doing those things. So they're picking and choosing passages of Scripture that they want to adhere to and align their lives with. Can't do that with any doctrine. We certainly can't do it with predestination and election. And because it's a difficult doctrine, it's one of the ones we tend to just cherry pick a few verses and move on because we want it to fit what feels right to us. We can't feel our way through the doctrine of predestination and election. We have to begin by reasserting the authority of the Word of God. Here's our problem as human beings. Second preliminary consideration is to consider how temporal we are. And by that I mean we're always focused on the temporal. Things that are temporal are things that are seen. And the Bible's constantly saying, hey, you better work at trying to keep your minds engaged, not just with what you see, but what you don't see. And we're constantly chided and encouraged and motivated and even exhorted to keep our minds on things that you can't see, which is a lot of what we're going to deal with tonight. 2 Corinthians 4.18, we look not to the things that are seen, but to things that are unseen. Things that are seen, they're transient, they're going away, they're temporal. But the things that are unseen, those are eternal. So we're going to talk about eternal things today in God's planning of salvation in eternity past. You can't see it. If you want to feel your way through it, you're not going to make that. Because we're going to feel certain things based on our experience of being focused on the temporal. So we need to be ready to consider the unseen and understand why some truths are hard for us. Colossians 3 saying, set your mind on things above. You've been raised with Christ. Seek the things that are above where Christ is. Seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on the things above, not on the things of the earth. The focus here is trying to get us to look beyond temporal realities. And that's hard. We're not commanded to do things that are easy for us to do. We're commanded to do things that are hard for us to do. So you need to understand our tendency to focus on things we can see and to fail to ponder God's oversight. I quoted the verse about victory is something that God grants 
not about the plans of man. Well, that's how we function every day. We look at what we, we plan. We look at the resources. We check our checkbook balances. That's how things work in the temporal world that is seen. I, I picked this from today's DVR, our daily Bible reading this morning. Did you catch? We had all this poetry. Then we got to a one little paragraph of prose in chapter 22 where, now again, Isaiah is going to deal with the coming Babylonian captivity, but they're looking at a lot of the assaults that the Assyrians who took out the northern tribes had foisted on, on Jerusalem, on the southern part of Israel, on Judea. So he's getting them to think back to all of that. And he says in verse number eight, he has taken away the covering of Judah. In that day, you looked to the weapons of the house of the forest. You saw that the breaches of the city of David were many. You collected the waters of the lower pool. You uh, counted the houses of Jerusalem and you broke down the houses to fortify the walls. You needed the stones. You needed the mason work so that you could build up the walls and the fortress. You made a reservoir between the two walls for the water of the old pool. This may even be a reference to collecting the waters of the lower pool, Hezekiah's tunnel, when we had the Assyrian assault on Jerusalem. They didn't defeat them at that particular time, but you've been to Israel with us. You've walked through the tunnel perhaps. And he's saying, look at what all you did. We even celebrate that when we go to Israel. Look at this ingenious engineering feat and the tunnel that was built here. Why were they doing that? Because they were under siege. Now, all of that was what you do when you have an army marching against you and you say, we got to figure all this out, but we fail to do what they failed to do. Look at the last sentence here, verse 11, but you did not look to him who did it or see him who planned it long ago. I didn't think about that. You mean this was all planned? This siege of Sennacherib, or the, which the siege in particular is not noted for us, so we're not sure exactly which one he's talking about. But you're telling me that the Assyrian kings, you wanted me to think about the fact that when we solve a problem and survive, it's the one who planned it. It's not Hezekiah. It's not the kings of Judea. It's God. You want me to look behind it, that the victory is not in the horse or the chariot? Okay, I can get that. But I also want you, God says in our DVR this morning, to think of him who planned it long ago. He figured this out long before it ever happened. Well, I haven't thought about that. That's the problem. So when we get to salvation and we're winning people to Christ and we're hearing people's testimony in the baptismal tank, we're not thinking about predestination and election. That's not our pattern. We don't think that way. And we need to. Matter of fact, he's chiding them there for not thinking that way. You did not look to him who did it or see him who planned it long ago. Well, I can't see him. You're not going to see him with your eyeballs. You need to look past the temporal or focus is often on what we can see. Number three, because of that, we tend to exalt human over the divine. We build the statue for the guy who gets us out of the, 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 the problem with Assyria. We, we, we hail the heroes who, you know, tackle the guy on the train in France or whatever. We, we look to the people who seem to be the temporal heroes, but we don't look to the one who's unseen, and we don't recognize or think through the one who planned it all. We exalt the human over the divine. We do it all the time. Proverbs 16 read this not long ago in our DBR. The plans of the heart belong to man. Yeah, we figure this out. We think this is the way to do it, whether it's someone planning the the, the siege bulwark of of Jerusalem or whether it's someone intervening in a problem. But the answer is is from the Lord. The answer of the tongue is from the Lord. Wait a minute. That's my answer. No, that's God's answer. All the ways of a man are pure in his own eyes, but the Lord weighs the spirit. We're often thinking about ourselves and we rationalize and all the rest, but God's looking at everything objectively. He's looking past the outward appearance. Commit your work to the Lord and your plans will be established because God is the one who is doing these things. Verse 9, later in the passage, it says, the heart of the man plans his way, but the Lord establishes his steps. This is the problem we have. And now we're going to turn 
salvation and flip it over and look at the divine side of it. And you go, I don't like that. It doesn't make any sense. Why? Because we don't think that way. Your brain doesn't think that way. You don't practice thinking that way. We don't even set our minds on things above enough. And you think that just means think about heaven. That's important. I get that. But it's not about that. It's about thinking of him who does everything through human agency and the one that planned it long ago. So we're always exalting the human strength, the human power, the human decision-making. Or in our case, the human freedom and the human choices and the human sovereignty over and above God's sovereignty. Happens all the time. We'd like to think, just to get ahead a little bit here, that if anybody's sovereignty is curtailed, it's God's sovereignty that's curtailed by my sovereignty. God's sovereignty has got to respond to my sovereign choice. That's how we think. Because we never want to think that our sovereignty is somehow curtailed by God's sovereignty. Why? Because we're constantly focused on the temporal. All that's preliminary. I hope that's helpful as you'll see. As we consider number two, biblical assertion. Let's start with the words that are used. Start with three words. We can look at a lot that I suppose are, are related. But we're talking about salvation and because the clearest expression in the New Testament is the focus on Christ, the propitiation of the cross, the atonement of Christ's death. Let's focus on New Testament words regarding our eternal salvation as we distinguish from temporal salvation in our first week. Electos, the Greek word. You can see that we get the word elect as a transliterated word from electos. Electos, and I'm using the two translations of that Greek word in the ESV, are elect and chosen. Only two ways that it's translated, but now you can see, oh, okay, I get that. Electos means to choose, to pick out, to select something. And the context that we're dealing with tonight are he's picking things out and selecting things and choosing things ahead of time. That's the context when we're dealing with salvation. For instance, Romans chapter 9, verse 11 and 12. Though they were not born yet. Now he's looking back at the Old Testament, but he's applying it to salvation today. Looking at Esau and Jacob, the twins coming out. They hadn't done anything good or bad. If you want to look at their lives and their behavior, their resume, whether or not they were lovable or not lovable, they hadn't done anything. But in order that God's purpose of electos might stand or continue or remain or be prominent or be on display, his purpose of election might continue, not because of works, but because of him who calls, because he's going to make a decision and he's going to employ that decision. Well, then mom was told, the older is going to serve the younger. Well, based on what? Just based on my choice ahead of time. Me selecting things ahead of time. Picking the head and the tail ahead of time. Oh, Esau will come out first. Jacob's going to come out second. I suppose technically the firstborn's Esau, but I'm going to flip that around just so that my purpose of choosing things ahead of time might continue, might remain, might be prominent, might stand. Electos. A couple other passages to jot down. Romans chapter 11, verses 5 through 7. To show you this word in use relating to our subject. So too, at the present time, there is a remnant chosen by grace. Chosen by grace. And if it is by grace, it's no longer on the basis of works, just like the example we saw from chapter 9. It is something that God does because he chooses to do it ahead of time. Otherwise, grace would no longer be grace if it was about, well, I really think Jacob's going to be, you know, this guy who does better things than Esau, so I'm picking him. No, it's about the choice. What then? Israel failed to obtain what it was seeking, and the elect obtained it, and the rest were hardened? Well, that's it. Israel here, there is a remnant within Israel, but the remnant ultimately gets the salvation of God are those who are chosen, who are elect. Both of those words come from the Greek word electos. The rest, nope, they're going to look, they're not going to see, they're going to be hardened. Second Peter chapter 1, verse 10. Sometimes we're trying to figure out, am I elect or not? Well, great. In this passage about sanctification, it says, you ought to be all the more diligent to confirm by your spiritual growth, your calling and your choosing ahead of time, your election. For if you practice these qualities, you'll never fall. Electos. 
to be chosen, to be picked out ahead of time as it relates to our salvation. We often look back at that saying, well, if I am elect, then certain things will happen in reality in my life. Second word I want us to consider before we look at passages that shape our doctrine here, my doctrine. Pro, you can see the word P-R-O there. That's helpful because it's a compound word, something that is done before. That's what pro or pros is. Orizo. Orizo is to decide or to make a firm decision, to decree. These are translated two ways in the ESV, predestined or predestined, and decree or decreed. To be predestined or decreed comes from this word, pro, which is helpful, orizo, that beforehand something was decided, that beforehand something was determined. Of course, one of the classic passages most of us think about when you hear the word predestined, I assume in English, is verse 30 of Romans 8. And those whom he predestined, determined ahead of time, decided beforehand, then he also called. Those he called, he also justified. Those he justified, he also glorified. Pro orizo, another use of that is in Ephesians chapter 1, when it says he pro orizoed us for adoption as sons. He predestined us to adoption as sons through Jesus Christ according to the purpose of his will. In him we've obtained an inheritance having been pro orizo. We had been decided or determined beforehand according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will. So God's got some decisions that he's making after the will that he is deciding, and that's why we need to hurry along to that word, thelema, the word will, translated in ESV, either will or desire. Only two ways it's translated in ESV, thelema. Now, here's where you have a word that is broadly used, that at least we need to make at least two distinctions throughout the usage in the New Testament of this word. So many little chart I'm building here. These are words that have been helpful for theologians to just at least take the passages and throw them into two categories. And I'll put some up in a second. But if I'm thinking about his will, to go back to this verse, he's predestined us for adoption as sons through Jesus Christ according to the purpose of his will. There it is, Thelema. Verse 11, in him we've, been, we've obtained an inheritance. We haven't got it yet, but we're as good as God. Having been pro-orizod, predestined, predetermined ahead of time, according to the purpose of him who works all things after the counsel of his thelema, his will. How is that used in that particular passage? Well, differently than this. It's not his prescriptive will. It is instead, let's call it his decretive will. I try to avoid as much as I can on Compass Nights all the fancy words, but I can't get around these. I give you three examples of distinctions here. Prescriptive is what he prescribes, what he says you should do this. Decretive is what he has firmly resolved to do. There's the distinction. The word will, thelema, is used in both categories. We often talk about his, in this case, it can be used in other ways in sanctification, but let's talk about justification. His revealed will, this is what he's calling everyone to do. He's calling everyone to repent, Acts 17. But then there's his secret will. There's a determined plan that he makes, that he works everything after that determined plan, that resolved plan to do what he's going to do, and not everybody in Athens is going to repent. There is his moral will, and then his sovereign will. This is the moral template. This is how people should respond. When it comes to the next battle you have, you should not trust in the bulwarks. You should not trust in the captains of your armies. You should trust in the Lord. You should look to the one who you can't see. You should look to the planning and remember him who planned this long ago. And that's his moral will. Not everybody does it. Certainly they didn't do it then. Then there's his sovereign will. There are some that do, much like Noah, much like Job. When you look at these unique situations where there's not many righteous people, here's one that actually does what God had morally required. Prescriptive will, decretive will, revealed will, secret will, moral will, sovereign will. Put this into practice with some passages. Now, if, you, if, I, if I asked you, was it the will of God for Eve not to eat 
that fruit off the tree called the knowledge of good and evil? Well, yeah, he says it right here. The tree of the knowledge of good and evil, you shall not eat. That's his prescribed will. That's his revealed will. That is his moral will. He's throwing it out there. Don't do that. This is what I want you to do. I mean, you go through all the Ten Commandments, you can look at any passage of Scripture that says, here's what you should do. In this case, I picked one that we've all failed in probably today, and that is don't covet. Don't covet. There is his prescribed path, his moral path, his revealed will. Then there's his sovereign will, his secret will that we don't know until it happens, his decretive will that he has decreed and resolved and chosen in a way that will take place. The Lord of hosts has sworn, there's a strong word, as I have planned, so it shall be. Now, when you look at his will for them not to eat the fruit, you can say, well, that was his revealed will for them. Here's my, here's God's will for your life. Could you walk up to Eve and say, here's God's will for your life. Don't eat the fruit. Could you say that with authority? Absolutely. But you'd be talking about his prescribed will. You'd be talking about his revealed will. You'd be talking about his moral will. But ultimately, he says here, when he swears something and plans something, then that's what it's going to be. For as I purposed, verse 24 says, so shall it stand. Verse 27, for the Lord has purposed, and who's going, to, who's going to annul it? If God is firmly resolved to do something and plan something, then that purpose is going to stand. There's the distinction that we see throughout the Bible. God's saying, here's what I want for you. And then there's something else that he wants. That's what thelema means, right? To will something, to want something, even translated to desire in the New Testament. It is that sense of saying, no, this is more than just what I want. This is what I have planned, both under the category of will. Here's a mind bender. Go to the garden. Go to the garden in your mind. Jesus, is he perfect? Thank you. That wasn't a trick question. There's one person that believes the doctrine, impeccable nature of Christ. That's awesome. No, you believe Jesus is perfect? Perfect. He is one who has, as the incarnate God, a will in the garden. And what's his will in the verses that precede Luke twenty-two forty-two? He doesn't want to, he wants the cup to pass from him. What's a poetic way of saying what? Let's do something else this afternoon. I don't want to, I don't want to go to the cross. That would be bad. I don't want to do that. But then he says, nevertheless, though that is what I want, I'm willing to say, I recognize that it's got to be your will and not mine. Nevertheless, Yours be done. Your will be done, not my will be done. You've got to see in that passage, there's two wills. You can see it in one verse, can you not? There's what he wants, but wait a minute. He's God. Doesn't he want what his father wants? He's been saying that throughout the gospels. Well, well, what does he really want? He wants the will of God. What will of God? Well, not just the will of God that people shouldn't murder people who are innocent. That is the revealed will of God. That is the moral will of God. That is the, the, the prescriptive will of God that innocent people should not be strung up on a Roman execution rack. That's the, will of, that's the will of God, and it's the will of Christ. But it's not the purpose or the plan or the decreed will of God. It's not the sovereign will of God. So he's willing to defer the sovereign will of God over and against the prescribed will of God. Because you can agree, just like you'd say to Eve, don't eat that fruit off the tree. That's not God's will for you. Is it God's will today for us to jeer at a guy who's innocent as he carries a cross through the Via Della Rosa, if you will, and he's heading to, and we yell at him and we crucify him and we have Romans beat him up? Is that the will of God? Of course it's not the will of God. Not the moral will of God, not the prescribed will of God, not the revealed will of God, but there's another will of God. That's the will of God that Jesus is resigning himself to. Two wills of God, at least two. All right. Well, what about evil stuff, man? God, I can't make God the author of sin because that's what you're doing. Because basically you're saying it was God's will that Eve ate the fruit. Isn't that what you're trying to say, Pastor Mike? And that would make him the author of evil. Here comes the rub. Let's at least make some big statements that would help us understand how far this goes. Does the Bible have any problem taking the decretive will of God, the secret will of God that actually comes to be 
the sovereign will of God? Does he have any problem saying, you know what, within the sovereign will of God, there's bad things like the fall? There's bad things like the crucifixion? No, not at all. Lamentations 3, verses 37 through 39. Who has spoken? And in this case, Nebuchadnezzar said, we're marching on Jerusalem. We're going to take the city. We're going to burn the city. We're going to move the walls and take them down. That's what everyone feared, and that's exactly what happened. Thanks to Hezekiah, by the way, generations earlier. That ends up what exactly what happens. Babylon wants the gold in the temple, and off they go. Now, who can say that kind of thing and give a charge order to the armies and have it come to pass unless the Lord has allowed it? Is that what it says? Commanded it. You see, that's the sovereign will of God. That's the decretive will of God. That's the will of God. You say, I wouldn't see that coming. The secret will of God, if you will. That is different, but here it says, well, that will of God encompasses even that. In this case, the Babylonian, you know, destruction of Jerusalem. Is it not from the mouth of the Most High, his command, that good and bad come? Ask the guy on the street on the average patio of the average church in Orange County. The answer to that would be no. Go on Twitter and find the answer, and the answer would be no. This rhetorical question, based on the context, based on the statement just in front of it, verse 37, in that they were being destroyed by the Babylonians, was, of course, it's from the mouth of the Lord. Yes, good things and evil. Isn't that what Job said in Job chapter 1? This has all happened to me. And while he was still in a godly mindset, in a frame of mind that was willing to glorify God, he recognized the Lord gives and the Lord No, he wouldn't take away because that wouldn't be a good thing. I don't want people in my family dying. That's a bad thing. And yet here's Job affirming the revealed will of God. That's what he wants, but this is the sovereign will of God. He doesn't want the Sabaeans coming in and taking his people. He doesn't want the whirlwind coming and smashing the house and killing his children. That's not what he wants. But he recognizes the decretive will of God, the sovereign will of God. The secret will of God he never could have guessed as he sat there thinking about his flocks and his herds and his family was one day came crashing in, pardon the pun, and he realized this is God's will. The Lord gives and the Lord takes away. Which, by the way, if we were all perfect, we might be able to slam our fist down on the desk and say, it ain't right, don't deserve that. But quickly on the heels of this, verse 39, Jeremiah is quick to say in his lamentation, why should a living man complain, a man about the punishment of his sin. In the end, we deserve nothing good, which is the problem in this election predestination problem we all have, the, the issues we have with it. We, we often think everyone should get a crack at this thing. Everyone should be saved. God should be nice to them all. I mean, shouldn't Job live a long, healthy life? Shouldn't his kids grow up to be, you know, these great people in the land? Shouldn't all of his flocks and herds that he worked so hard for, shouldn't they be maintained and, and protected and have no enemies come and steal them? Well, in the end, we recognize that we've got a problem with man. You've heard the whole line, the old line, <laughs> why do bad things happen to good people? And the strictly theological answer to that is they don't, with the exception of one man. Did you follow that? Because in the end analysis, everybody living in Jerusalem who was ransacked by the Babylonian armies, ultimately before God, because God had said the wages of sin is death, they really had no complaint. It may mess up the temperature on the thermostat of how things were going in their lives, but in reality, why should a living man complain? A man about the punishment of his sin. Who has spoken and it came to pass, and thus the Lord has commanded, is it not from the mouth of the Most High that good and bad come? One of the earliest writing prophets there in the northern kingdom of the ten tribes, Amos writes and says, is a, is a trumpet blown in a city and the people are not afraid? Of course, right? Everybody's afraid when the sirens go off. Does disaster come to a city unless the Lord has done it? And in that sense, does a person die? Does a sparrow fall from a tree dead without the Lord commanding it? Without the Lord doing it? No, for the Lord does nothing. 
without revealing his secrets, see, this is a secret will, to his servants, the prophets. And all he's saying there is take comfort, northern tribes. The Assyrian assault on the northern tribes, he's already told his prophets that you should know it's coming because he's revealed that ahead of time to the people of the north through his prophets. Does disaster come to a city unless the Lord has done it? Watch how people just, doo, 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 doo. they would never say such things. Now, I understand we're not going to throw our pearls before the swine. We don't want to do that. But if someone wants to sit there and say, well, that, God would never have that happen. There's nothing that happens in terms of disaster to a city in this context. Or as it says in Lamentations 3, that some kind of bad comes to a city without the Lord commanding it, without the Lord speaking it, the mouth of the Lord, without the Lord doing it. Wow. You mean God's decretive will is all-encompassing? Exactly what the Bible teaches. There's no way around that. Example, the evils of the, of the crucifixion of Christ. The evils of Christ's crucifixion. There is no greater travesty than that. And I know it's a kind of a, not a very satisfying joke, but to say, why do bad things happen to good people? To technically and crassly say theologically they don't, I have to add, well, they did once to one man. The perfectly good person, when Jesus said, no one's good but God alone, yes, are you calling me God? He's inferring there in Matthew 19. Well, listen, he was good. The Bible said everything he did was good. And he suffered horrible. If you want to talk about something that is egregious in the Bible, the greatest evil in the Bible was the stringing up of Christ on a cross. The greatest evil. Well, let's just consider the Bible's statements on that. Acts chapter 2, verses 22 and 23. Men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst, as you yourselves know. This Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God was crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. Note that, verse 23, according to the definite plan of God. So you're telling me God can somehow be holy and have immunity from being an evil God and still bring disaster to a city, still command destruction on a city, of course, because the problem is we're sinful people. Who can complain when a man is punished for his sins? Even if it's egregious, even if it's terrible, we've offended a holy, infinite, holy God. Of course we deserve hell. So when anything bad happens, I can't really complain about it, even if it means all of us are killed in a big earthquake tonight. That's how the ball bounces. But when it comes to Christ, this is the ultimate injustice and evil. The Bible says, well, even that was the definite plan of God. Two chapters later, in the prayer of the apostles here, amidst the persecution, for it says, truly in this city, verses 27 and 28, there were gathered together against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed. This is a prayer, you catch that. Both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the people of Israel, to do whatever your hand and your plan had, there's our word, pro aridzo, had predestined to take place. So the ultimate injustice, the ultimate evil, the ultimate awful Killing of an innocent man. The Bible makes clear God is still holy somehow in accomplishing really the only exception to the rule that there would be bad things happening to a good person. The evils, the ultimate evil, really in some sense the only ultimate evil is now credited to the Father, to God. Even was in the Old Testament. Isaiah 53, the Lord was pleased to crush him, putting him to death. The martyr theory, and we'll talk about this later. But if you see Christ as simply a martyr suffering against the hostilities of an evil generation, evil people, you have to recognize that the Bible, even as it predicted this hundreds of years before it happened, said very clearly, it'll be the Father that puts him to death. It's the Father that crushes him on the cross. Number three, well, how can that be? I hope you know the answer. I hope you know the answer. Because when it comes to the cross, you're sitting on the other side of this, I trust, recognizing we sing about the cross. Why would you sing about the ultimate evil in the universe? Why would you sing about that? Why? Interactive church. If I were still in Florida, man, they'd be screaming at me by now right? They'd have the answer. Why? Because it's the ultimate good for us. There's good that God works in that evil. 
God's overarching good can never be forgotten. Well, couldn't he make a great cake by not cracking any eggs, you know, to use that old adage? Can't he somehow work good without the bad? No, that's, that's his plan. That's his plan. If we had time, and you should probably look it up on Focal Point, walk through Romans chapter 9. It's a series I did on Focal Point called um, God's Work in Salvation. And we deal with some of the issues of ultimately God works his best plan to put the spotlight on his grace and his mercy by decreeing from the very beginning, even the fall that took place in Genesis 3. We see little episodes of this throughout the Bible. And some great statements that codify this principle. Genesis 50, verse 20. Joseph sold into slavery, left for dead at one point, but then sold into slavery by his brothers because they were jealous and they hated him. Here's now Joseph, as you remember, ascending the throne in Egypt, the number two guy there. Now here come his brothers with hat in hand, wanting some grain. And when they all have the revelation that he is who he is, they're afraid he's going to kill us. And he says, don't be afraid. Verse 20. As for you, you meant evil against me. You didn't only mean it, you succeeded, right? It was evil, but God meant it for good. What do you mean? God was meaning something in that? God, in the jealousy of his brothers and the envy of his brothers and the selling as a slave in in a pit and pulling him out of it? You're you're kidding me. The deception to dad and all of that, that was evil and rotten. Yeah, but God was in it all meaning to do something else, meaning good, to bring about that many people in that case would be kept alive as they are today and not just many people, the descendants of Abraham. And that was very important in God's plan, including the ultimate evil of the universe, stringing up an innocent man on a Roman execution rack in the first century. We know God worked ultimate good in that ultimate evil in taking my sin and yours and punishing it completely as a propitiation and a satisfaction of God's divine justice. God's overarching good is at work even in the decreed evil in the universe. And don't forget this, the principle that we quote for us, but I want you to back past our thoughts and and, and how that might work out a year from now or five months from now or next decade. Think about it from God's perspective as well. We claim this for us because it's directed to us. And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good. For those who are called according to his purpose, Now, if this were found in the middle of some psalm, you might not think he has any evil in mind, but the passage is clear. In Romans chapter 8, they are like sheep being handed over every day to die as a persecuted church. And here he's saying all that persecution, like lambs to the slaughter, all the famine, all the peril, all the sword going on in the church. He says, all of that is going to work for good. Just like every blow of a Roman fist to Jesus' face was ultimately making clear for us the way so that we would not be punished by a, a holy God. And somehow the Bible says, look at that. Now, if God's saying that's true for us, God who plans it all clearly is working out good in the universe through every evil thing that takes place. He's got a plan. He's working the plan. Now, we're told we can't complain when punished for our sins, but even the evil that comes through the decreed plan of God is working out his good purpose. If God didn't have a good purpose for this, well, then we would impugn his character, but we can't because he does work a good All right, letter C, more on this, on the back. Biblical assertions, specifically regarding our salvation, letter C. That's at the top of page two, regarding regarding our salvation. How is that described? Well, in two ways. Let's start with the last word, thelema, will, and work our way backwards here. Let's think about these concepts in terms of his prescriptive will. We know that he's called all men everywhere to repent. You know that he comes on the scene in Mark 1.15 and he tells everybody, everybody, repent for the kingdom of, of God is at hand. That is his prescriptive will. Or to put it this way, Lord's not slow to fulfill his promises as some count slowness, but God is patient toward you. Not wishing, there's our word, our idea of, of desire, 
his will, that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. So in one sense, that's his prescriptive will. I mean, it is his prescriptive will. In one sense, that is his will for all mankind. And in that sense, we can take that idea of will and start to add some emotion to it. Ezekiel 18, 23. Have I any pleasure? Is it any fun? Do I take any evil kind of sadistic pleasure in the death of the wicked that they're going to reach their judgment? No, I don't, declares the Lord, and not rather that he should turn from his way and live. Of course, that's what he wants. That's his desire. That's his prescriptive will. He takes pleasure in that. Doesn't take pleasure in the judgment of the, of the wicked. First Timothy chapter 2, verses 3 and 4. This is good and is pleasing in the sight of God our Savior. Speaking about how we should be living our lives. And then he says, speaking of good and pleasing things to God. Here's good and pleasing things to God. He desires that all people are to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. So regarding salvation, God has a desire. He's repulsed by the idea, the Bible says, he takes no pleasure in it at least, in people being judged for their sin. But he desires people to be saved. He desires people to come to the knowledge of the truth. He desires people to reach repentance. That is his prescriptive will. But there is his decretive will. His decretive will is crystal clear throughout the Bible. I don't want you to be unaware, speaking now to the church, mixed with Jews and Gentiles. But of course, Paul's primarily the apostle to the Gentiles. is going to focus in on that here. I don't want you to be unaware of this mystery, brothers, that a partial hardening has come upon Israel. Now, there are some that respond to the gospel. So it's not a complete hardening, but it's a partial hardening. Matter of fact, most are hardened until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in. Now, I've preached on this before, and I've even created little images for you so you think of this. I hope you've been around my preaching at least. I would ask the question, how many is that? How many Gentiles do we need until the bus is full? That's his secret will. I don't know. His revealed will is that everyone gets on the bus. But his secret will is there's going to be a saving of Israel when the bus is filled with Gentiles. He's got a plan. And he's working that plan. That's his, his decretive plan. That's his decretive will. And that particular plan is going to reach a particular point. And at that point, times of Gentiles is full. Now, we're going to have a salvation to Israel. Well, does that mean everyone's not saved? That's right. Matthew chapter 7, verse 13, we quote it all the time. The, no way is, the gate is narrow. The gate is enter by the narrow gate, for the gate is wide. And the way is easy that leads to destruction. And those who enter by it are many. And I meant to put the other verse, verse 14. Road is narrow, way is hard, that leads to life, and few are those who find it. So few people are saved, but God says the full roster is going to be filled. So there is a roster, there's a number of people, and when those people are filled in the church age, then we get back to fulfilling Israel and the time of Jacob's trouble and the millennial kingdom, in my eschatology at least, and off we go. But not all people are saved. Well, you just told me his prescriptive will, his revealed will, his moral will is that everyone is saved and comes to the knowledge of truth and repents. Yes, that's true. But that's not his decreed will. Not everyone will be saved, only a particular group of people. Philippians 1, 28 through 30. This is a clear sign to them of your destruction, but of your salvation and that from God. So I get salvation from God, the issue of them uh, persecuting us. That's a sign of their destruction, that they're on the wrong side of this thing. That's the context. For it has been granted to you, been given to you. Because he just talked about our salvation being given to us. It's from God. It's been granted to you that for the sake of Christ, you should not only believe in him, but also suffer for his sake. So God is giving me some gifts here. Salvation and suffering. I'd prefer to take the first one and skip the second one. But that's not how it works. He's given me these things. Engaged in the same conflict that you saw I had, and now I hear that I still have. So he's going to fill the bus, and that bus is going to be filled with people that are given a couple of things that all Christians get. You get salvation, and you get suffering. That's all from, from God, as it says in verse 28. Acts thirteen forty-eight. Well, who does he give that to? 
Well, in Acts chapter 13, it says, when the Gentiles heard this, they began rejoicing, glorifying the word of the Lord, and as many as were, here's another word, appointed to eternal life, well, then they believed. There were those that had been given this gift of salvation, who had been granted salvation, and they're going to get a lot of suffering along with it. Those things were given by God to them. How many did? Well, however many were appointed to that. However many were decreed to have that happen. As many of those who were in the secret will of God, determined by God in his sovereign will to believe. Acts chapter 18, verses 9 and 10. This is the passage about his calling. He recounts it a couple of times in the book of Acts. The Lord said to Paul, one night in a vision, do not be afraid, go on speaking. Uh, I am with you. Here he is encouraging him after being persecuted, reviled, and, and run out. He's being opposed and persecuted. He says, no, keep going. I'm with you. For none will attack you to harm you, for I have many in this city who are my people. So you've got more evangelistic work to do. They've rejected the gospel. You're being persecuted. But what you need to recognize is, I'm not done with you yet. I got more people in this city that I have decreed, that I have granted eternal life to, which I'll also grant suffering to. So you got to keep at it. All right. God's decretive will. All those words come together there. Now, what are our key elements with this whole thing? If you don't get this point, you miss the whole point. Uh, And that is the problem of sin. The key elements in predestination begins with sin. It's what runs throughout the entire doctrine of predestination and election. You cannot understand the biblical teaching on it unless you understand something of the problem of sin. You need to understand its severity. And the severity of sin is so severe that it is equated to something that should give us a sense that to be lost is to have zero hope, no hope at all. And the best analogy God can give us for that is imagine someone dying. And he says, that's how you were toward God. Verse 1, before you were saved, you were dead in the trespasses and and, and sins that you lived in and walked according to the course of the world, didn't have room for all of it. He reprises that in verse 5 when he says, even when we were dead in our trespasses, we became alive. That doesn't say that because here we're talking about the problem of sin and how severe it is. Well, we can't come alive. We can't wake up. Death is something you don't wake up from. The analogy doesn't work unless I recognize someone has to intervene and make us alive. We were made alive together with Christ. And he has to say, if that's the case, dead people can't possibly join the team. And the reality is, this is all by grace. Just as it said in the passages we've looked at, it's salvation to the Thessalonians. He gives you this. He grants this to you. For grace you've been saved. And he's raised us up with him and seated us with him in heavenly places in Christ. So that in the coming ages we might show the immeasurable riches of our smartness and our intelligence and our morality. No, the riches of his grace and his kindness toward the dead people that became alive. By grace you've been saved through faith. That is not your own doing. It is the gift of God. I know you learned that as a kid. I hope you did. Or whenever you became a Christian, that was one verse you came to real quick. You realize what a big statement that is? This whole concept of salvation, you were so lost, it was as though you were dead. You didn't wake up. You were made alive like a resurrection. That's by grace. By grace, you've been saved through faith. That's not of your own doing. It's the gift of God, not as a result of works that no one should boast. More on this. Mark 10, verses 26 and 27. After Jesus deals with the rich young ruler, he says, or they said, rather the disciples, after this guy walks away and isn't saved, they they were exceedingly astonished. And they said, after he said about the rich man, you know, entering the kingdoms like a camel through the eye of the needle, well, if this is what you're talking about, who then can be saved? Because this guy was a prime candidate. And if you're telling me it's like a camel through the eye of a needle, I, I don't get it. Who can ever be saved? Jesus looked at them and said, with man, it's really hard. Just like a camel through the eye of a needle. 
That's why if you've heard the illustration about the camel going, having to stoop through the needle gate or whatever, that's not the idea. This is a comical statement like beam in your eye. Jesus is saying the camel cannot go through the eye of a needle. They had needles. They had eyes in their needles. This was something that cannot possibly be done, and he proves it here. Jesus says with man, it is impossible, but not with God. Just like me going and trying to assemble a basketball team at the morgue. I can't do it. No one responds, no matter how persuasively I try to get them to join my team. They won't join the team. If I preach to non-Christians, it's the same thing the Bible says. With man, it is impossible. But not with God. For all things are possible with God. This is the miracle of regeneration. It is granted to people. It is given to people. How severe is the problem of sin? Death. It's impossible. Do you see what we're saying here? Being saved is impossible. With man, it's impossible. Well, I can't even understand what someone's telling me about the gospel. 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 14. The natural person, because they don't have the spirit, does not accept the things of the spirit of God, they're folly to him. He's not able to understand him. Not that he's not trying and listening hard enough. He's not able to understand because they're spiritually discerned and they don't have the spirit. Wow, where does that leave me? Impossible. I'm back at the morgue. I can't possibly get these people to join my team. That is because they're not spiritually endowed. Well, I'd sure like them to be spiritually endowed. Well, that's going to take a resurrection. That's going to take a miracle. That's going to take the miracle of regeneration. Why? Because sin is that severe. Acts chapter 11, verses 17 and 18. If then God gave them, here are these folks uh, sitting there talking about Gentiles being saved here. If God gave them the same gift that he gave to us, the Jewish people, when we believed in the Lord Jesus, who was I that I could stand in God's way? When they heard these things, they fell silent and they glorified God saying, then to the Gentiles also, God has granted repentance that leads to life. How do those ears open up? Really good apologetics. How do the ears open? Just the right kind of hymn played long enough with hands raised and a great plea from the pastor. No, the text says God has to grant it. Every time you see the granting of salvation, the giving of salvation, you talk about being saved by grace and not your own doing. You do recognize what you're really speaking to is the foundational need for predestination and election because we're so steeped in sin, we can't possibly respond to the gospel. Now, we could go on a long time tonight just with those, but I gave you several verses here. There's a lot more that the Bible helps us understand the severity of sin. I hope that's enough to convince you tonight. If you've been sitting under my teaching, I trust you hear this highlighted from time to time. Well, if that's the case, and God is granting salvation to people that are spiritually dead, if the problem of sin is that severe, well then, I got to ask, why does God make these decisions? All I can tell you is the Bible teaches this. God's choices are non-contingent. God's choices are non-contingent. They're not contingent on anyone else. They're just not. They are, as we want to speak theologically here to the debate, they are free and unhindered decisions. His sovereignty is completely free. His choices are completely unfettered. His ability to make a decision does not depend on anyone else's schedule or or anyone else's determination or I don't know if they will respond well to this decision. I don't know if they'll have time for this meeting. That, That doesn't work that way. God is the one who has completely unfettered, unhindered, free, non-contingent decision-making powers. And when it comes to our salvation, he's able to say things like this that make perfect sense from heaven's perspective. If you think of the unseen, see the unseen, and imagine the God who works behind the scenes in everything. John 15, 16, and, and 19. You did not choose me. Well, that's how it felt, not only for the disciples, but that's how it felt for you too, wasn't it? One day, I was laying on the gurney in the morgue, I heard the sermon, I joined the basketball team. That's how, that was my experience. Well, you didn't really choose me. 
I had to go and open those ears. I chose you and I appointed you that you should go and bear fruit and that your fruit should abide or remain so that whatever you ask in the Father's name, he may give you. I'm going to do great things through you. I know he's speaking specifically to the disciples here, the apostles. All of this applies to us as well as you'll see in verse 19 because I know this is true of me. And that is, if you are of the world, and I'm not of the world, it's not just the apostles that are not of the world, I'm not of the world. He says that repeatedly about all Christians. We're called out. Ecclesia, the church, even the word church, means we're called out from the world. If you're of the world, the world would love you as its own. But because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. Now that ties the context together. I don't choose him, he chooses me, because he has free and unfettered decision-making. And he chooses to pluck me out of the world. That's why I got so many problems, because he's granted to me salvation, and he's granted to me suffering. That theme's pretty common in the Bible. Joel Olstein just seems to miss it every time he opens his Bible for some reason. Why does he do this? Well, he's going to explain it to Israel in the Old Testament, Deuteronomy 7, 7 and 8. Well, I tell you, one of the reasons I chose you and set my love on you is not because you were more in number than any other people's. That's not why the Lord set his love on you and chose you. For you were the fewest of all people. If you're going to look at what value you brought to this, you brought no value compared to the other nations. So why did you do it? Verse 8, it's because the Lord loves you. The question is, why do you love me? Because I do. That's not a very good answer and satisfying answer for us who want to be loved because we're lovable. In this case, not because you had anything to offer. The nation of Israel was chosen because God chose to do it. And he's keeping an oath. Why did he make that oath? Because he picked a great patriarch to start with? No. God just chooses to make promises and decisions unfettered, uncontingent, free and unhindered. And he makes those decisions. And when he makes those decisions, he keeps those oaths. He swears, he plans, and he carries it out. Second Thess 2, 13 and 14. But we ought to always give thanks to God for you, brothers, beloved in the Lord, because God chose you as the first fruits to be saved through sanctification. This now is talking about positional justification, if you will. The idea of positional sanctification set apart as holy. You're God's by the Spirit and belief in the truth. That's our experience. To this he called you through the gospel so that you may obtain the glory of our Lord Jesus. No, I chose him so that I could have those things. Now, I know that's how I experienced But the Bible is very clear. My problem with sin was so severe, I couldn't have chosen him. He had to choose me. I only loved him because he first loved us, loved me with the kind of specific decision to gift me repentance and salvation. Where does that leave me and my decision-making? Well, contingent on his. My decision-making is contingent on his. His decisions, uh, sovereign decisions, affect my decisions because my decisions in no way can sovereignly override his decisions. My decisions are dependent and they're responsive. I have to respond to God's decreed decision. I cannot change those things that he decrees. I can only respond to those things and therefore my decision-making, my will is dependent. This is dramatically illustrated when Jesus speaks to his opponents. John 6, 35, call goes out. The moral will of God, the prescribed will of God, the revealed will of God is that people would imbibe on Christ and be saved. They would eat the bread of life, if you will. Jesus said to them, I'm the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger. Follow me. Whoever believes in me shall never thirst. Whoever believes in me, whoever comes. Verse 36, but I said to you, that you have seen me and yet you don't believe. Okay, you've seen it all. You've known it all. You've watched me feed the 5,000. That's the illustration of who I really am. You're, you're not responding. Now, why don't you respond? Because all that the Father gives me will come to me. And whoever comes to me, I'll never cast out. Now, wait a minute. I'm not responding. Why am I not responding? Well, because Father didn't give those to me. Well, then they don't respond. 
Verse 44, to put it more poignantly at the end of this discussion, no one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him. He has to make this gift, has to give this, and then he has to open those ears, and he has to grant that repentance, and he has to give that faith, and he has to provide that salvation. And I'll raise him up on the last day. The picture, to use the picture of Lazarus in John 11, is the responsiveness of Lazarus to walk out of that grave when Jesus said, come out. That is the responsive decision-making of Lazarus responding to the call of Christ because Christ had decided it's time for this dead man to live. That's exactly the picture of the problem of sin. One I can't solve on my own, one that has to be solved for me, one that is gifted to me. And my response, the testimony that Lazarus has is, I was dead one day and I walked out of the grave when I heard the voice of Christ. Well, you did. Well, how did you do that? You were really a light sleeper. No, you were dead. But you responded because Christ had decided that you would be alive. John 10, verses 24 through 28. Jews gathered around him and said, how long are you going to keep us in suspense? If you're the Christ, tell us plainly. Because then, of course, we'll all sign up and follow you, right? No, I have answered this question already. I've been very plain. Jesus said, I told you and you do not believe. The works that I do in my Father's name bear witness about me. You guys have seen them with your eyes. People down the centuries are just going to read about them. You've seen them, but you do not believe because... You're not among my sheep. Wow, really? Yeah, my sheep, when I preach to them and I give the evidence to them, they hear my voice. I know them. I've known them from the beginning. That's the concept of foreknowledge. I wish we had time for that. We don't. And they follow me. They respond. I give them eternal life. It is granted to them. It is gift. It is grace. And they'll never perish and no one's going to snatch them out of my hand. So the reason you're not responding because you're not one of mine. Ooh, what's God at the center of all this? Yeah, well, then I guess they're not responsible for their rejection of Christ. Here's another key element of predestination and election. Your rejection and your sin, you're culpable for all those choices. Just like the people that crucified Christ, as was made clear in the New Testament. They are responsible for doing that. Even Judas, who was told in prophecy that he would be the one who would reject Christ, Jesus said, better for him if he was never born. Well, why would you punish him for fulfilling your plan? Well, because he's culpable for sinful decisions. He'll be held responsible for them. Romans 1 verse 20, for his invisible attributes, even for the person that doesn't read the Bible, namely his eternal power, divine nature, have been clearly perceived. So people get enough information about God through creation and through blood moons and everything else to say, wow, God is a great God. Ever since the creation of the world, he's been screaming through creation and the things that have been made, people can see them so that they are without excuse. I know one thing about the Bible. Clearly, every person is responsible for their response to God. Specifically, and I should say more intensely, the more they learn about God and learn about Christ. Start opening a Bible, there's even more accountability now, and they will be culpable for their choices. The next chapter makes it super clear. Because of your hard and impenitent hearts, but you're telling me that they're just, they're not given that grace gift of salvation. I understand that. But they continue because of the hardness of heart and they're indulging in sin and their free choices within the context as a sinner has real legitimate freedom to be sinful. Well, they're making decisions to store up more wrath for themselves in the day of God's wrath when God's righteous judgment is revealed. Acts 18 verses 5 and 6. When Silas and Timothy arrived in Macedonia, Paul was occupied with the word. He was testifying to the Jews that that the Christ was Jesus. So he's trying to evangelize these folks. When they opposed him and reviled him, he shook out the garments, his garments, and he said to them, well, you can't help it. You're not chosen. No, your blood be on your own head. I'm innocent. I've done my job. Our problems with predestination, time is slipping away. We hate being dead in our transgressions and sin. I don't want to hear that I'm incapable. Well, 
I understand that. The Pharisees didn't like it either. Jesus said, for judgment I came into the world, but those, that those who do not see may see, and those that may see may become blind. I need you to see your problem, your need. Some of the Pharisees heard him saying that. He said to them, are we blind? Come on, we're not blind. Jesus said to them, if you were blind, you would have no guilt. But now that you say you see, your guilt remains. You don't want to admit the problem. You don't want to, as John 3 says, as Jesus said to Nicodemus, you don't want to step into the light because you don't want your sins to be exposed. I, I know you don't like being blind. You certainly don't even want to admit it. It's one of the reasons you want to talk about God's choices. And in that day, he saved this blind man in John 9 and not the Pharisees, and they freaked out about it. You know this story Jesus tells in Luke chapter 18, verses 11 through 13. Pharisee standing there praying thus to himself, I thank you, God, that I'm not like other men, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week. I give tithes of all that I get. But the tax collector standing far off would not even lift his eyes up to heaven. He beat his breast saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. Pharisee didn't want to see himself as a sinner. He didn't want to see himself as in need of God's grace. We don't like being incapable. And one of the things that insulates us, we can always find someone else is worse than us. And that keeps us in that situation of saying, I don't want to think that God is not within my reach because I see a lot of really bad people out there. We just hate being incapable. We'll build a complete set of excuses as to why we've got something here to bring to Christ, something that should make us acceptable to Christ. I don't want to think that I'm dead in my transgressions and sin. Letter B, we hate being dependent. Psalm 2, why do the nations rage and the people's plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves up. The rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed. Why do they do that? Why do they reject Christ? Why do they chafe against God? Why do they do that? Well, here's what they're saying. Let us burst their bonds apart and cast away their cords from us. They don't want to be fettered by God. They don't want to be dependent on God. They don't want to be subject to God. They don't want to seem less than God. They don't want to think that their autonomy is any way violated by a God who is bigger and more sovereign than they are. To quote that old poem from William Ernest Henley, it matters not how straight the gate, I know Jesus talked about that straight road and that narrow gate, how charged with punishments the scrolls, I know they keep threatening hell and all that, I'm going to pay for my sins, I'm done with that, I'll throw those fetters off, I am the master of my fate and I'm the captain of my soul. He's been dead for a long time now, by the way. I think the master of his own fate and the captain of his soul, he did not want to die. By the way, he wrote this when he started suffering with tuberculosis. Well, you can say all you want. You can wear all the wristbands you want. You can throw on all the ribbons on your car that you want. You can say you're going to fight it and you're going to win and all the rest. But in the end, you're dependent. In the end, you're not the master of your fate and you're not the captain of your soul. You are dependent in every way. The Bible says in Hebrews chapter 1 that Christ, the Son, is the radiance of the glory of God, the exact imprint of his nature, and he upholds the entire universe by the word of his power. Tell Henley that. You don't even exist without God determining today and decreeing today that you'll exist. Colossians 1.17, Christ is before all things, and in him all things hold together. You don't live another second without God's involvement. Acts 17, the word from Paul to the Athenian professors, he's not served by human hands, God that is, as though he needed anything. He gives, he himself gives to all mankind life and breath and everything. Those are good verses for us to continually repeat to ourselves, to remind ourselves we're dependent, and maybe we won't struggle so much with some of these concepts of predestination and election. We chafe against God's autonomy. I don't like the fact if I can't be autonomous that he's autonomous. I don't like the fact that my decisions are contingent. I don't even like the fact that I can't do whatever I want or be whatever I want or go wherever I want. I can't time travel. I got to watch movies to kind of vicariously imagine that. I, I, can't, I can't dunk a basketball. I can't do a lot of things. I'm limited in so many ways. I don't want to talk about a God who's got complete freedom, who's completely autonomous. 
I am God, there is no other, none like me, declaring the end from the beginning, ancient times yet undone. My counsel's going to stand. I'm going to accomplish my purpose. Well, aren't you arrogant? Because you know what? I can't even get my kids to clean their room. What kind of autonomy do I have? I don't. We chafe against God's autonomy, and his statements are so severe. Look at these words. Psalm 135, verse 6. Whatever the Lord pleases, he does. He's not waiting for people to respond. He's not looking to see how people are going to act. This isn't some kind of time travel game. He does whatever he wants in heaven and on earth and the seas and all the deep. He does what he wants. Job 42, he finally got this idea at the end of the book. I know that you can do all things and that no purpose of yours can be thwarted. I can't heal myself. I can't keep my kids alive. I can't, I can't keep my body healthy. I can't do any of these things, but you can do them all. That's the God that unfortunately is not the domesticated God of most evangelicals, certainly in America today. What do we do? Well, stop fighting the doctrine of God's unfettered, free, unhindered decision-making in salvation. Stop fighting it. That's what Romans chapter 9 says. When you start talking about predestination and election and God choosing not based on works because he looked ahead to see what Jacob and Esau would do, but he decides because he decides. Has mercy on whom he has mercy. You're going to ask the question that everyone's going to ask. You'll say then to me, why does he still find fault? Why in the world does he find fault and want to judge anybody then? For the one who resists his will, because you're telling me he didn't enable him not to resist his will. You're right, that's what I'm saying. But the answer is this, stop asking the question. Verse 20, who are you, old man, to answer back to God? Well, what is molded? Say to its molder, why have you made me like this? Has the potter no right over the clay? Of course he does. To make out of the same lump one vessel for honorable use and another for dishonorable? Of course he can. See, the answer for predestination and election and all the little Charlie horses it gives our mind is stop asking the question. Stop fighting it. I can tell you this. All the people that want to line up to ask God questions when they get there to see him, they won't be in line to ask him any questions. I'm just telling you. They will not. No one's going to go, well, i got a real problem. Why did you do this? Nobody's going to say it. When you see him in his unmitigated glory, there's going to be none of that. You'll stop fighting it then. I'm just trying to get you ready for heaven. Stop fighting it now. And by the way, stop complaining. Stop complaining about it all. Job dealing with God's unfettered decision-making and his free choices in a lot of things certainly applies to our salvation as well. Lord finally speaks to Job, says, hey, you got problems with how I'm making decisions? Shall a fault finder contend with the Almighty? You want to you put on, you want to go a few rounds with me? Fine. He who argues with God, let him answer it. Come on, bring it. You got a complaint? Job, when he meets God, says this. He answered the Lord. He said, behold, I am of small account. What shall I answer you? I'll lay my hand over my mouth. I'll shut up now. I want to stop complaining. Job did well for a chapter, but there are about 30 plus when he was complaining. I know that's a hard lesson to learn. When it comes to our salvation, it's the same way. So we relax, we coast. We say what they said to the early wannabe missionaries. Hey, if God wants people saved in other lands, he'll save them. If he wants my neighbors saved, fine, he'll do it. He doesn't need me. No, keep working, keep deciding, keep evangelizing, keep going. Second Corinthians 5, knowing the fear of the Lord, we persuade others. Well, why would we? If God doesn't enable people, well, whatever, then it's just God's decision. No, all this is from God. We get that. There's the sovereignty statement in verse 18. Who through Christ reconciled us to himself and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. Now, I understand he saved us by his choice, his sovereign choice, but now he's got a role for us. What's that? Verse 20, ambassadors for Christ. As though God were making his appeal through us, we implore you on behalf of Christ to be reconciled to God. So I should be passionate about my evangelism? I thought you were believing in the sovereignty of God. I am. Keep working, keep deciding, keep evangelizing, keep praying and trusting. Lest the Lord builds the house, those who build it labor in vain. Unless the Lord wants to save a person I'm sharing with, I'm sharing in vain, but I'm going to build the house and I'm going to pray that God would establish it. Lest the Lord watches over a city, the watchman stays awake in vain. I understand God's decretive will, but I'm going to work, I'm going to pray, I'm going to trust, I'm going to ask for his oversight. 
his graciousness. The king's not saved by his great army. A warrior's not delivered by his strength. I'm going to have my warriors work out. I'm going to try to have a good army, a standing army if I'm a king. But the war horse is a false hope for salvation. So is great evangelism or great apologetics. By its great might, it cannot rescue. A great pitch can't save. But behold, the eye of the Lord is on those who fear him and on those who hope in his steadfast. Pray, God, I know we just barely scratched the surface here, but I pray that we would have our minds with that barrage of scripture references bathed in a, enough passages of your word that we have to embrace all of, that you have breathed out, that has been accurately preserved for us, that we are subject to and will be held accountable for, that would shape our thoughts and our hearts and our lives and allow us to be a little bit like Job saying, you know what, it is what it is in the Bible and I am going to not fight it. I'm not going to complain about it. I'm just going to work. I'm going to keep making decisions based on the word of God. I'm going to keep evangelizing and see my neighbors exhorted and implored through my evangelism. And I'm going to keep trusting you and praying. And let that be the upshot, not to mention worship, that you're a great God with all power, unmitigated, unfettered decision-making capacities. And we worship you for that. No one else in the universe has that power. So we grant you that in our worship and our thoughts, our prayers, and even in our thanksgiving. A bunch of vessels, pots, as we pray to the potter, We're grateful, though, as we think of our salvation. We'll get into more of this in the weeks to come, but how great it is that we have been included in your saving work. Let let us make our calling and election sure by being serious about our spiritual growth this week. Thanks for this study, Jesus.